Um, it's my uh, privilege to be able to introduce to you a speaker today who's going to bring our message. And he may be familiar, at least the name may be familiar to some of you. His name is Senator Greg Hembry, South Carolina Senator Greg Hembry from the 28th District, serving Horry County and Dillon County, I believe, are the two. He was uh, voted into that office in 2012, and then in 2016 was reelected with nobody opposing him, and I don't know that he will have anybody opposing him. Um, Greg and, and I have been friends since they moved to the beach uh, many years ago uh, when kids were teenancy and they drove a station wagon that they, they uh, affectionately referred to as a submarine because it got flooded out on the street one time and all the kids had to get up on the top of the, on the, top of the car. And it, was, it was one of those things, you know. Uh, Greg serves on the Education, Transportation, Finance, Rules, Agriculture, and Invitations uh, committees. And in addition to his regular committee assignments, he's been assigned the chairmanship of numerous subcommittees and is the chairman of the K-12 Education Subcommittee. So this whole education thing is near and dear to his heart. He served as an assistant Majority Whip and was elected chairman of the 2013 Senate Freshman Caucus by his fellow freshman senators. He and his lovely wife, <laughs> Renee, uh, have three uh, children, two girls and a boy. They have two son-in-laws. They have one grandson, Henry, and uh, they live in Little River. They attend Ocean Drive Presbyterian Church. And that's, that's the obligatory stuff that I have to say about Greg. The reason that I asked Greg to come, and you know how we protect this pulpit, the reason I asked Greg to come is because I've known for years that he has a heart for God. He seeks after God. He loves God. God. He loves Jesus. He has a strong relationship with the Lord and wants others to as well. His heart is, is fully for the gospel and spreading the gospel to whomever, wherever he can. Um, I have considered it an honor time after time after time to, to vote for, for Greg in the elections that we've had in Horry County when he ran as solicitor and then uh, as, as senator. Um, God has blessed him. I think God will bless our state with so many wonderful uh, congressmen and women and senators who get together, have Bible study, pray with one another, pray for our state, pray for our communities. We are indeed in good hands. So would you welcome to our pulpit South Carolina Senator Greg Hembry. Thank you. Oh, yeah. That would be good, wouldn't it? If they're going to hear you. There you go. Thank you, George. Uh, it is a true honor to be here today. I must tell you a couple of things to start out, and then we're going to say a short prayer. But I am... Um, First, after that, um, after that prayer for Teen Angel, 
And I met with your, I met with your team before we started today, and I prayed with them uh, with those very emotional, uh, heartfelt, Holy Spirit-led experiences. I could go home right now. I've had, I've had, I've, I am just about, I mean, I am feeling the Holy Spirit. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to get out in the streets and get to work. Um, but it's, uh, I do want to say about Teen Angel that it is a, it's been such a blessing to be a small part of it, being married to Renee, and to get to go through this walk with her and to meet the kids and to get to know some of them and to actually see. I don't really have to do the work. You know, I sort of just get to watch, but I get to watch close enough that I get to see lives being changed in a profound way and children that were going to get left on the, on the curb. They were going to end up dead or in an institu- you know, institutionalized in a prison or, you know, a, a go to co- you know, get out of high, stay with high school, finish high school, and go to college and become productive members of, of our community. And what a, I mean, wow. I mean, it was such a blessing. So I'm so thankful that y'all, uh, y'all took the time, George, to, to um, uh, not only collect the things for Teen Angel, that's important, but I think the prayers and uh, the encouragement are, are things that are those intangibles that keep you in the, you know, keep you marching 100 miles more when you sometimes get tired and worn down and you wonder maybe, maybe it's time for somebody else to do, do these things. Well, that's not, where, that's not where Teen Angel is at all, and it's because of that encouragement. Uh, please join me for a moment in prayer. Father God, uh, I love you and I praise you. Um, I ask that everything I do that is worthwhile be given to your glory. I ask that the Holy Spirit that is in this place now fill the hearts and minds of those gathered here. I ask that you, you guide and direct me as you, um, as you have permitted me, giving me this blessing of sharing a message today with, uh, with Renovation Church. And finally, Heavenly Father, I ask that you, when we leave, that you give each one of us a sense of urgency, a sense of purpose for what you want us to do, so that we don't merely walk out the door and say, well, that was a, that was a, good, that was a good service. I, that was nice. I enjoyed that. That we, that we feel compelled, that we have a fire burning in our heart to go out into the world and to bring others to find you and to find everlasting life. I ask these prayers in your name. Amen. Um, I have uh, I first bring you greetings from the South Carolina Senate. I drove in today, and, and it was basically a, a cloudless sky, really a beautiful Sunday morning. And uh, I, I got, when I got here, I talked to George, and I said, um, George, what's, you know, y'all have insurance on this building? And he said, well, yeah, we're, we're fully insured. I mean, we got, I said, you're insured against, against fire? He said, yeah. I said, good, because you've asked a lawyer and a politician to speak to your church. <laughs> Lightning can come out of the clear blue sky. And uh, so, you know, though, y'all know where the exits are. Be aware where the exits are. And we'll all be ready to go just in case. I will, uh, I'm going to share this joke, not because it has anything really to do with what I'm, my message today. It's just a pretty good joke, and I think I can get away with it. So I'm going to give it a try. Renee's heard this joke, so she can, she, she, she can not pay attention. The... Um, <laughs> So there's this fella, he's got a son, 22-year-old son, who's kind of adrift, and this father, and he's worried about this son. 
And he's talking to his buddy who's had some, a little older than him, he's had some children that have grown up and gone. And he's telling him, you know, I'm worried about my son. I just don't know where he's headed. You know, he just seems kind of floating around out there. And the friend says, I can give you a test that will tell you how your son's going to turn out. He says, oh, I want to hear about it. He says, when you go in his room, he says, put on the counter a $50 bill, a bottle of bourbon, and a Bible. And uh, when he comes home, you know, sort of watch what he does. If he picks up the $50 bill, puts it in his pocket, he's going into business. He's going to make money. He's going to be just fine. Okay? says if he picks up the Bible, he's going to become a man of God. He's going to be a preacher. And, you know, I know you'd be proud of him for that. He says, absolutely, that'd be terrific. He says, but if he takes the bottle of bourbon, well, he's probably going to have a problem with drinking. You've got some hard times ahead of you. So he says, okay. So the father sets all this stuff out, and he waits kind of in the hallway. He's kind of waiting until the son gets in that evening, and he kind of watches as he comes in. Well, the son walks up, takes a $50 bill, sticks it in his pocket, takes the Bible, puts it in his backpack, picks up the bottle of bourbon, opens the top, takes a couple of twigs, puts that in his backpack. Father's mystified. What, what, what does this mean? Goes back and tells his friend. What happened? He tell, this is what happened. Two, one, two, three. His friend says, oh, no, you're in big trouble. He says, why? He says, he's going into politics. I thought I might get away with that one here. <laughs> so it's a, I think it's sort of light, kind of art imitating life maybe for me. But um, let, me, uh, let me tell you, I'll start with this little report from the Senate um, about uh, the, the lifestyle there. And it was something that um, I didn't expect when I started five years ago. I really didn't know what to expect. And I wasn't sure I would like it. And I didn't know I'd stay. I just was... You know, see if it works. Um, but I guess I want to talk about faith in the Senate and the, the people of faith that I get to serve with. Um, they are, uh, uh, I don't always agree with them. We have, we have bitter disagreements, okay, over policy issues constantly. I mean, that's what we're there to do. We debate these policy issues. And, uh, and we, you know, we go hammer and tongs. Don't get me wrong. It's not always, a, and sometimes we get along a lot of times, but we don't get along sometimes too. But I can say this, um, by the vast majority of the people that I serve with in the Senate are good men and women. Uh, most, of, most of them that I know are Christians. Uh, they are, even though we might not agree on policy, uh, most almost to a man and to a woman, they are there trying to do the best they can in good faith for the constituents that elected them with the talents they have. And that was a nice surprise to me. Another nice surprise was this. We start every single day in the Senate. In session now. This is in session. We're gaveled in, and the very first thing we do is we pray. And the second thing we do is have a devotion by the chaplain of the Senate. And the chaplain remains in the Senate throughout the, the day. Um, he's available to us for counseling, for discussion. Uh, you know, there's a, there is a heavy tradition in the Senate of, of seeking God first before we go seek these solutions. Uh, and that remains to this day. So that's not something that's, you know, I, I worry about it in the current climate in our country, but at least in the South Carolina Senate, we're on the right track with that. The other thing is we have a Bible study that meets every, there's actually several Bible studies, but uh, we have a Bible study that meets every Thursday, early, early in the morning before we get started and have uh, mostly uh, members of the Senate and the House 
participate, and they're the ones that actually give the devotions. So it's, uh, you, know, you get to hear people's personal testimony, and it's really been a great... Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed being part of that Bible study. And a couple of years ago, we formed in South Carolina the, the South Carolina Prayer Caucus. Uh, we had a large number of senators and House members that joined together. Uh, that uh, This is across party lines. Across, I mean, there's no... You know, it's, 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 you, you look out, it just looks like South Carolina. You know, men, women... Uh, African-American, white, rural, urban, you know, every, everybody's represented there. Many people are represented. And um, it's part of a national movement, and we pray for each other and look out for each other um, as believers. So there is, a, there is a lot of faith that takes place, even though it, you're not going to see that on the news, okay? You're not going to hear about that, uh, uh, read about that in the newspaper. But there is, there, there is a foundation of faith in the place that I work that makes it uh, really a pleasure to work there. Um, now, I want to shift to our, our message today, finding unity in a divided world. Um, you know, throughout history, uh, man has lived in a divided world. I mean, that's not something that's uh, a, a revelation to us. You know, that's not something that we can we look through history and see that. Uh, but recently, we have found ourselves in this country, in the United States, living in a place that feels more and more divided in our country. We feel that in, in our state as well, in our local communities, and in some cases, even within households. You know, there are people that have become so caught up in the, in the policy questions that we consider in our country uh, that they are having fights at the breakfast table about it. And so we, we, are, are, we are in that time. And that's been something that's, de- that's been developing. This is something that is reaching a, a, a serious point. In 2016, there was a Gallup poll that was done. And in that poll, 77%, now let's think about that, 77% of Americans polled believe they are living in a divided nation. Now, these, they started doing this poll in 1994, and it was 63% back in 1994. And it's been on a steady increase until 2016. It's been on a, on a, on a pretty stable increase up to, 20, up to 77% last year, at the end of last year. The only time, and this was, this was the only thing that's worth mentioning that's interesting about this. I think you, would, you can see that the numbers are pretty staggering. But there was a three-year period where that number dropped dramatically down to 24% of people that felt like they were living in a divided nation. Anybody have any idea when that was? 9-11, exactly. It was right after that period of time, right after 9-11, where the country was able to come together. Uh, We had a clear common enemy, uh, and we were able to find unity as a country. So at least in the way we felt about our country. You know, examples of recent divisions are are easy to find. Uh, Presidential elections are probably the easiest, you know, over the last several years. Every election is you know, 50 to 49, you know, 48 to 47. They're very, very, very close elections. Uh, so you see that there's, I mean, there's this real split that's almost even. There's been a real uh, um, division in, at least we see it in Columbia, rural versus urban, that there's this, you know, this mindset in one part of the country, the more urban parts of the country that, that is very disconnected to the rural parts of our country. That's, that continues to be. 
even in our own churches um, in, the, in recent years. And that's not something that's brand new, but we have, it does feel like there's been sort of an uptick in churches that are traditional uh, denominations that have, that have split. And we've seen this in the Methodist church. We've seen it in the Episcopal church. We've seen it in the, in the Presbyterian church. My, my church, our church, Ocean Drive Presbyterian, has just gone through this experience in separating from PCUSA. So it's, you know, it's been, it's, there's some division within the church itself. Um, and then just sort of in the way people treat each other. Uh, recently, my wife and I got a chance to go to Boston for a legislative conference. And we got to tour the JFK Library. And it's the 100th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's birth, and they had a lot of special exhibits out. It was just an outstanding, uh, if you get a chance, you should go. I'm not working for the Boston Chamber of Commerce, but it really was a great, uh, a great uh, display, great museum. But uh, we went with another member of the legislature who was up there for this conference. Uh, she, she had arranged for this tour, and we kind of got a little special tour, saw some South Carolina artifacts. Um, she arranged the tour, and as it worked out, we're, we're going with um, three other legislators and us. And these three legislators have been friends of ours for, well, come on, for a really long time, okay? They just happened to be Democrats. Didn't think anything of it, you know? I mean, it never even occurred to me. I'm a Republican. We show up at the JFK library. And I don't know if it was because it was JFK or if it was because it was Boston or, or something else was going on there, but we genuinely felt sort of like y'all aren't with us. You know, we don't want to be seen talking to you, you know, here in the holy JFK library or something. It really kind of felt that way. And it was, uh, it was, it was odd and sort of disturbing. And I, you know, we, we, I noticed it, and, and I didn't say anything to Renee while we were there, and she noticed it, and she didn't say anything to me, and we're in, riding in the Uber on the way back to the hotel, and she said, was something going on with you guys? You know, was some, is there something happening here? And I said, I don't know, but it sure felt like it. So, you know, even personally, we're, you know, these divisions are, are out there. So um, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's a real thing. Um, of course, as I mentioned before, the world's always been divided. I mean, we've got a lot of, the world has been divided. You know, that's something that we're accustomed to watching and sort of looking at and going, well, that's y'all's problem. You know, that's, a, that's something that, you know, the Arabs and the Jews, as old as history, you know, that's, that's a division that has been there since, you know, thousands of years. Many religions, you know, many different philosophies. We have a history of warfare in this, on this planet that continues to, the, to this day. Um, and, and economic systems. And even in the early church, even in the early church, there was division. There was a lot of division. And uh, there are quite a few Bible references to that. I'll share a couple with you. You can look and you can find plenty more. But Paul was spending a lot of his time in his missionary journeys. He plants these churches or has, is working with others to plant churches. Then he goes back through and he's trying to patch up the holes that are the leaks that are springing in these churches, you know, these divisions that are coming about. So a lot of his time was like, okay, let's settle down, let's keep our eye on the ball. You know, this is about this is about you know Christ. This isn't about you know which one of you gets to do what. It's funny. Some things hadn't changed much, I guess. But let me let me share with you First Corinthians three one through four. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. 
I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? And again, with the Galatians, Galatians 1, 6 and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So you can, de- you can detect from the tone of Paul's letters, he's pretty put out. He's pretty, because he's seeing this division. Well, we understand that the world has, uh, has always and always likely will be divided. But I want to bring us back to something more, more current and uh, more close to home. What's happened in the United States? What's changed in recent years? What's changed that leaves 77% of Americans feeling like they live in a divided country? And what can we do about it? Well, the issues really haven't changed in our country. The issues are the, the issues that we're dealing with now. And you can, you can, I've seen this in Columbia. We're, we're working on the same issues that we were working on 40 years ago. I mean, you can go back and read correspondence. You can read the legislative journal and see what they were debating and talking about. And you'll find, with very few exceptions, that they're the very same issues that we're struggling with today. There's some problems you just can't solve. You work on them. You try to make them better. But you can't ever completely fix them because they're dynamic. They keep moving. They keep rolling. And that's what we find. So it's not that the issues have changed in America. And and we've been dealing with these for a long time. But there are some things that are changed. One, quite obviously, is technology. And uh, we've got the internet. I mean, I think the internet uh, certainly is such a great tool. It gives me the ability when I'm preparing this message to sit down and go on there and find these nifty statistics and sound like I've been reading a lot and stuff. Pretty smart fella. Uh, that was straight up out of the internet. But it was good internet sources, by the way. Uh, but the internet has changed the way we communicate. And the, we now have Facebook. We've got Twitter. We've got bloggers. We've got all these abilities to communicate. And we've got an ability to communicate that um, it's not only free speech, it's anonymous speech. And so people can literally say without any fear of, of, of consequence, anything that pops into their head, basically. They can make stuff up. No problem. Nothing's going to happen. So they put it out there, create all this strife, create all this anxiety, and uh, there's really no, no consequence to it. And they can reach an unlimited audience with this technology. It's remarkable. And they can literally reach anybody with a computer with, this, with the technology that's available. So that's, that's been a, a big, big change. Uh, second, the media has changed. Uh, y'all remember, many, not all y'all, I'm looking at, but a lot of y'all remember, like me, the days of Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite was, polling showed it back then, was the most trusted human being in America. When he came on the CBS Evening News and he said this was what happened in Vietnam today, 
That's what happened in Vietnam that day. Now, was he sexy? Maybe not. You know, was he was he uh, was the news always riveting and interesting and, uh, you know, like a show? No, sometimes it was just the reporting the facts on the labor statistics or whatever the facts might be that night. But that's the way the news was presented, both on television and in the newspapers. If you had an editorial position, it went on the editorial page. The rest of it was news. Uh, that's changed. Now we turn on our news and we've got four people. We can see all four of them lined up, four talking heads, and they're screaming at each other about how stupid somebody is, how ridiculous that position is, you know, how that they should be indicted for such and such, uh, hollering like this. It has left us now. The public's trust in the media in the United States of America is at an all-time low. No great surprise. But the media has changed that, and it's, it's left us in this. What we see is a lot of bickering you know, and, 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 and consternation and very few facts. The tone of communication has changed. Uh, that's an example of it in the media, uh, but, but really across the boards. I mean, you hear it in political discourse um, constantly that the, you know, there are personal attacks that, are, that come first. Uh, there are very few logical, well-thought-out intellectual arguments that are even offered. Those, those are, those, we don't even get to those because we're too busy hacking at each other with a, with a hateful tone. Um, I think this worship of celebrity has really grabbed a hold of us. I remember my grandfather, um, who's a banker in, in Memphis, Tennessee. I remember one time he, uh, um, I was about, about 12 years old, and there was a mention of him in the Memphis newspaper, the Commercial Appeal, a little mention of some professional award or some professional thing that he had, he had achieved. And um, I was visiting over his house, and there was my grandmother mentioned it to me, and I thought that was pretty cool, you know. And I'm like, she's got the article, and I'm like, hey, my grandfather's in the paper, you know, that's that's really cool. And he looked up at me, and I'm kind of going on about it. And he looked up at me, and he said, "Son, if it was up to me, I'd be in the newspaper two times in my life: the day I was born and the day I died. That's all it was for me. I don't want to be in the newspaper. That's not how. And you know, that was I think that was sort of the prevailing view in his generation. You know, you just that just getting in the paper was not something that you were really looking forward to. Now, everybody's on Facebook, create their own celebrity, me included. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's this whole celebrity thing and building your brand. I mean, people talk about building their brand and, you know, they work at, at, at the kangaroo station. I mean, you know, what the heck? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's a good job. I mean, it's, you know, it's productive work, but... But really, you know, I mean, that's just, it just kind of leaves you scratching your head. I think we, um, you know, we used to appreciate good ideas. Now we more, are more concerned about how this statement might affect my brand. And, and finally, and I think probably what's changed that is the most frightening to me, is just this, the secularization of our country. Um, these are some, some more statistics that I'm going to give to you, but... In, in 20, 2007, okay, over a seven, this is 2007 to 2014. 2007, 78% of Americans said that they had some kind of faith, okay, some kind of faith. And 16% said they didn't believe in anything at all. I mean, there was nothing, no, no kind of you know, belief system uh, tied to any spiritual uh, beliefs. 
in seven years, that number of people that identify as having faith has dropped to 70%. Now, that's 8% in seven years. That's one percentage point a year, which converts to 5 million Americans over a seven-year period that no longer have a faith. That's a lot. And what's very interesting about this statistic is that it is not just young people. You might say, well, these millennials and they're coming up, and that's what it is. That's not the case. Actually, it cuts across all demographics, cuts across all age groups. It's relatively evenly distributed over all age groups. So that is a, uh, a troubling statistic. And the number of people that have no faith at all, don't believe in anything, has gone up to 23%. I think that's really what we're looking at. I think that's the number one issue that we're dealing with. I think that fundamentally, and listen to me about this, fundamentally, many no longer hold any of the core principle beliefs that gave us unity. We don't have those core principle beliefs that gave us unity. And people have replaced because they will fill that hole in. It's, it's, it's a spiritual thing. It's, it's the nature of man. It's the nature of that God made us. That there is a need there to fill that space with something. And what many people have done is they have filled that space with the political flavor of the day. Whatever issue that might be. That happens to be popular on any given, you know, on any given day. So what does... God wants us to do. Well, God tells us a lot, speaks to us a lot about unity. He wants his people to be unified. I don't believe that means he wants us all to agree about every single thing. That's not what I mean. Not even political issues. That's not what I mean. Or policy issues. That's not what I mean. But he wants us to agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He wants us to agree that he came to this earth, that he was crucified, dead and buried, and arose again, and that we can have everlasting life through him. God wants us to understand that, that core belief. From that core belief, everything else will spring. That's the fundamental belief that he looks to us. I, I ran across, again, computers are terrific, 66 verses about unity. So there's plenty of... You want to find out about unity, you can just about, just about any book of the Bible, you can find something about unity. But I'm going to share three verses with you that really spoke to me as I was reviewing them. First um, Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And second was Christ's prayer for his people. This is in John 17, 20 through 23, one part of that prayer. Christ says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And finally, and this is a um, verse that really gives us some very practical direction on how to live to grow unity. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. What does that look like for you and me in everyday life? Well, I think the first thing we do, live as a Christian. Live as a Christian. Follow the... follow. These guidelines in, that, that are in Colossians and many more throughout the Bible. But that's the first start. We have to get our own house right first before we can go out into the world. Second, treat other believers as a Christian. Once again, the next circle outside of ourself is our Christian family. Let's treat other Christians like a Christian should treat another Christian. Um, problems in church. It makes me think of the meeting I was at a session one time, and it was kind of a contentious issue. It was some building issue. I can't remember what it was. And somebody piped up and said, well, I've prayed about this, and God told me that we need to build the awning or whatever it was. And somebody else said, well, God told me that we shouldn't spend the money on air conditioning. So uh, there are problems in church uh, that can happen, but we have to treat each other. There are disputes that occur, but we, in the process, we really need to make an example to the way we treat each other for other people. Third, treat non-believers as a Christian should treat them. And remember our tone. Um, we were in, I mentioned we were in the, on this trip in Boston, and, and uh, we took Uber everywhere. I mean, almost, as a matter of fact, Renee had this great idea for this message being, call me an Uber, like God is like Uber. You know, he's there, you call him, he knows, he knows all about you before they ever come. You know, they're, they're on time, they're quick, you know, they're always there with you. You know, it's that quick. So um, I didn't go that direction, but uh, I did work this Uber driver into the story, uh, this message. We, we, um, you, we probably had 12 different Uber drivers through this trip we were up there. And, and um, you, different people, different places, interesting. It was like, it was, it was really an interesting ride uh, many times. But this one guy was... Um, he was he we were talking to him and he just had this he was from a foreign country um africa i think um he but he he's or maybe haiti i can't remember but he's he's got a little bit of an accent and he's just got this really sweet spirit and you could just, you just something was different about him you could tell you could tell there was something different about this guy who's driving in this eight minute uber ride we're taking and we're talking to him and finally I think Renee said, are you a Christian? And he said, oh, yeah, he is. And he shared a little bit of his faith with us. And it was, um, it was this 
tone, I guess, or this presence that he gave off that told us that this, is, this guy's different from those 11 other Uber drivers we've, we've been with. And, oh, what a, you know, what, what, that's what I want. You know, that's what I want to have when I go in the world that somebody says, there's something different about that guy. You know, there's something about him. I want, I want, a, I want something of what he's got. There's something about him. Um, so he was a, and uh, kind of takes me to my, my fourth um, point about this, is that we need to share the gospel and be prepared to share the gospel. I like the old, the old saying of St. Francis of Assisi, you know, share the gospel with words if necessary. Uh, I think first we have to share the gospel with our actions and the way we live, and then, but be prepared, always be prepared with the words when they're necessary and be ready at the ready to share that gospel uh, when it's time. So um, I, we've, got some, we've got our work cut out for us. Uh, it's an important time for the church in our history. I think that we are the, I think we are the hope of uh, restoring this country. I th- we are a great country. We remain a great country, but we can do better. And I think that, that uh, Christians are the key to that. And I think we're the ones that can turn this division around. I truly, in my heart of hearts, believe that. I think that in short term, the Christians can change the tone of the conversation. And we can fight, when I say we can fight that temptation to fight back. Because when somebody says that thing to us, and we want to react, and we're right, and we know we're right, take a minute. Don't fight back. You might want to speak, but speak in love. You know, speak in love. Um, in the long term, by sharing the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can add to the number that is saved and add to the number that are unified in a common belief that Christ provides for us. And, and, and regardless of the passing political flavor of the day, we have to be engaged in this battle. Um, as I thought about this message, and I realized that the title, Finding Unity in a Divided World, was not the best title. Um, the revised title, and my charge to you, is that we should be creating unity in a divided world. The world has not changed. The sinful nature of man has not changed. Spiritual warfare and Satan's tricks have not changed. But our nation has changed. That said, Christ's people, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can move our nation and the world to the place where God wants his people to be. So beautifully explained by Paul in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you, To live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Thank you for allowing me the privilege of sharing this message with you. God bless y'all and God bless the United States.